Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot with Joel and Kim, supported by DownloadTennis.com. On today's US Open Finals Catch-Up. Medvedev gate crashes Djokovic's dreams of a calendar slam. Raddy Kanu writes herself into the record books. And Joe Salisbury makes it a double, doubles delight. Kim, it is here, our final round-by-round catch-up of the US Open at Passing Shot HQ. And wow, do we have a lot of things to talk about. Daniel Medvedev, his first ever Grand Slam title, Novak Djokovic's dreams dashed of a calendar slam. We've got to talk about as well Emma Raducanu, which is an incredible story in its own right, becoming you know the first British singles ladies champion in over 40 years. And then Joe Salisbury, uh, who has been the man for all doubles occasions, it seems, uh, winning the men's doubles and now the mixed doubles. So there has been a lot of talking points for us to to sink our teeth into and we're going to start with Daniel Medvedev Novak Djokovic men's final last night and wow I mean we are now in a situation where Daniel Medvedev has won his first ever Grand Slam title and I think if you look at it on you know a piece of paper looking at that scoreline 6-4 6-4 6-4 you would have thought oh that was a pretty routine affair and you know, maybe you would have thought you you would have passed over it if you know you saw it on TV because you thought, yeah, it might be quite straightforward. But <laughs> that was completely not the case, was it? No, it was it was kind of um, very surprising actually, and and perhaps in hindsight not as surprising. But you know, I was just kind of thinking back to Medvedev against Novak in the Australian Open final earlier this year. Novak played so so well. Medvedev you know, got on the back foot, got all annoyed, and I thought, oh, surely we're just in for that again. But it was a very different Novak Djokovic and quite a different Daniel Medvedev this time round. Um, you know, Medvedev definitely served a lot better than he had in like the Australian Open final. I mean, those first two sets, especially, are pretty much a masterclass from Medvedev on serve. Um, and he was very kind of composed and was just getting the job done. But I do think, like, obviously, it's fantastic that he's won his first slam. Um, I think, you know, it's it's a very deserved victory. He's been fantastic this whole tournament. You know, he's only dropped one set. But the Novak Djokovic we saw last night was very surprising. He looked like a completely different man, a shadow of his kind of usual self. And I think that's just got to be due to the fact that he was going for this insane kind of, uh, you know, making history, being the first man in 52 years to um to, to do the calendar slam and, and that just was way too much for him when when push came to shove that final match he he just I think the pressure just totally got to him he just couldn't couldn't play his game no and I think Jim Courier on uh coverage made a really good point was that you know despite all the things that, that Novak Djokovic has won you know in his career this would have been the first time in a very long time he would have been in a situation that was completely unfamiliar to him. The fact that, you know, this, you know, going for a calendar slam does not come around too often. And, you know, Rod Laver was there front and center. A lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the TV coverage was padding to him, but it was a situation that was very unfamiliar to Novak Djokovic. And I don't know if that had an impact on him. I certainly think that he, you know, had had already a lot of mileage in his legs coming up to this match. He had played a lot more hours on court than, than Medvedev, given you know his slow starts. I think, again, this was another match where he lost the, the first set. I think that was five in a row. And previously, yes, he was able to come back and, and win it in four, but it wasn't going to happen today. And I do wonder whether there was a little bit of, there was a little bit of fatigue there. And as you said, the, the history and the pressure of the occasion, I think we saw that at the, the end of the match, which was extraordinary. Those, those last 10, 15 minutes where you saw 
Novak Djokovic on the, the final changeover get emotional to the crowd. I think you saw how you know, overwhelming you know, being in a tennis match, being in a final with a capacity crowd, how overwhelming and emotional it can be because Novak Djokovic at the US Open crowd is a, is a bit of an, an interesting, it's a bit of an interesting dynamic there. And it really turned, I think, in that last 10 minutes, kind of watching it as on TV as a fan. It was just fascinating because there was lots of jeering, you know, they wouldn't be quiet. It was very not like a Wimbledon crowd. But you could see at the same time, yes, they wanted more tennis. But I also think they just wanted to see history be made. And, and Medvedev, in that respect, was kind of like the, the, ultimate, the ultimate party pooper. Yeah, it was, um, it was a very emotional kind of end to the match for various reasons. Like you said, I think it was clear that from the start that Djokovic was, you know, quite heavy in the legs, like seemed a bit out of sorts. But as that really, you know, wore on and towards the end, like him openly sobbing, you know, at that last change of ends, I think it became obviously plainly obvious that he was just kind of done. And he knew it was over, didn't he? Yeah, the, the occasion, the moment. Um, although having said that, you know, with, what with the crowd being very, very uh, loud towards the end of the match, you know, at that point, at that changeover, Medvedev had had a championship point, had double faulted, Novak had broken back and Medvedev was, you know, had another chance to, mm. to then serve it out. Um, you know, fortunately he had that double break because I don't know what would have happened if he hadn't have had that double break. Um, but I don't, maybe Djokovic was thinking, how am I, A, still in this match? Because, you know, he's just had a championship point and B, can I possibly turn this around now? Um, and he just looked very spent. But yeah, my, um, I was getting quite annoyed at the crowd at this point because I just thought, especially on that championship point, you know, you should have respect for the game and be quiet when someone's about to serve. And they were just jeering and yelling. And like the umpire didn't really seem to do anything. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. In other matches, you see, they normally say like, look, can you be quiet, please? And Medvedev, I think, just kind of had to get on with it because it was obvious that the crowd weren't going to be quiet. And and I think that was obviously the, the major reason why he double faulted at or that particular, you know, on that championship point. Obviously, he then did a second double fault, which perhaps wasn't due to the crowd, but he was kind of rushing a bit and just, you know, you thought, oh no, like if he's going to, what if he loses now after having had, you know, this championship point and the crowd and, you know, that would have been such a scene. But eventually, you know, he got over the finish line on his third championship point. Um, so fortunately, you know, all that antics at the end, you know, hasn't affected the result, but it was... And I've seen quite a bit of chat on Twitter about it. You know, I did think the crowd just kind of lacked basic respect as well. Um, and very, very different from Wimbledon crowds. But perhaps, you know, we are we are used to Wimbledon crowds. So I understand <laughs> we're coming at it from a perspective where we kind of value that that kind of silence, I suppose, on like a pivotal point. I mean, that third set was fascinating because it, it did feel like the match the match started really for me at 5-1 down in that third set because you could see that for the first time in the match, Medvedev Medvedev got tight. And although he was putting on a, what I felt was a kind of serving masterclass, really, in the, the first two sets, in particular, that first set, which was just so routine and you know, that Djokovic didn't really have a chance. But in that third set, he you could see that he was sort he sort of realised, oh, I'm in touching distance of, of winning my first Grand Slam title. And, and now it had arrived, and I think, was in his in his head you could see that on his on the court that um you know he was have, having to handle uh, an extra bit of pressure and that was also coming from the crowd because the crowd had become completely pro Djokovic and we have not seen that all the way through this week because you know at the very start of the the tournament he didn't do his his famed celebration at the end because he felt that you know they they weren't um showing much love to him so a complete kind of turnaround in in that respect but you know, it was very, I think, impressive from Medvedev, the way that he was able to, to get it done, because you did feel that regardless of what situation Djokovic was in, two sets down, a breakdown, if he had nabbed that that second break, um, you felt like that was a complete game changer and, and momentum stopper for, for Medvedev. And I, I think regardless of being two sets down, I think literally the bookies were going from like, you know, 50 to 1 to like 9 to 1 uh, for Djokovic to to potentially win but you know it didn't happen and for Medvedev you know it was it was very impressive you know I think he was quietly confident going into the match given the the way he was you know playing and yes he hadn't really been tested but 
you know, we we've saw that with with Raducanu on the on the women's side. You know, she arguably hadn't really been tested her whole tournament. And again, this was just a it was just another dominant victory, and it it didn't really matter who was across the net because he was just able to kind of serve, get through his games with relatively no no fuss whatsoever and and really put pressure on the the Djokovic the Djokovic game which was you know at times very surprising and very baffling to see some of the you know the unforced errors he was ma- he was making you know he was having to go to serve and volley very early on in the match he wasn't really co- it didn't look like he was very confident with trading ground straights with with Medvedev from the baseline and again it was another i think reason why Medvedev did so well was that he was able to put Djokovic into very uncomfortable situations and <laughs> I don't have to tell you but that is a situation not many not many players are able to do in, in terms of forcing Djokovic to, to change his strategy. Yeah I did think tactically Medvedev like had obviously done some homework learnt from that previous Grand Slam final against him and he's actually got a decent record against Novak you know in um, competitions that aren't Grand Slams, you know, over the last few years. So he knows that he has like the game. It's just whether you can do it on the big moments, you know, over five sets, which obviously he wasn't able to do until until yesterday. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, um, I think it's ironic, isn't it? Um, that, you know, the crowd was sort of so behind Djokovic. They obviously, like you said, wanted to um, to see that history being made and to witness it and be there first firsthand. And we saw that in the, the, you know, the speeches afterwards and all the love that was being shown. And I think in, you know, a lot of previous Grand Slam matches, like Novak's had the crowd against him and, you know, yeah, he's won the match and he's kind of had to shut them up, if you like, and uh, prove a point. Whereas here he was getting all the love uh, yet not the title. So um, I thought there was a sort of a bittersweet irony in that in that sense. And um, I mean, I don't uh, doubt that Djokovic will get 21 slams plus. You know, I think, you know, Australian Open next year, he'll still be the hot favourite. But I think it's just that calendar slam, you know, that was really what he was going for. Um, I don't think he'd have the same sort of sense of pressure, just kind of trying to get his 21st slam but I do quite like the fact uh that they're kind of the big three are all tied on 20 for another like four and a half months at least (laughs) I think it's nice that they've kind of got that tie for a little bit longer yeah it's certainly opens it up for the Australian Open because I think we were all sort of hoping perhaps a bit uh we were sort of hoping that I think it was going to be a street fight between Federer, Nadal, Djokovic at the US Open. Didn't materialise for various injury-related reasons. But yeah, hoping that can kind of take place uh, next next season because it is still a fascinating thing. And the fact that they are still all on 20, I have no doubt that that is going to change. I just can't see them all ending on 20 and you know the, a changing of the guard has now happened i think what is interesting is if you do compare this match to the french open final where you know djokovic was playing sissipas and was two sets to love down it just shows you again i think the the difference in mental toughness i think between medvedev and someone you know like uh, you know, one of his rivals in in Sissipas in terms of that he was able to kind of get through it, whereas Sissipas I still think has some kind of work to do on that front. So yeah, it was a very you know it was a very accomplished victory. I think it was a very classy victory from from Medvedev and his match press conference afterwards. You know, he was talking about how he sees Novak Djokovic as the greatest of all time, and and that was I think a very that very nice compliment, I think, to to give him. And although Djokovic obviously did not win the match, the fact that the he had the crowd with him at the end, that for him, you know, he was saying like this is one of the happiest times he's been on on a tennis court. You could see how powerful and emotional that that made him. Which although he didn't come away with you know the history that perhaps the, the crowd were expecting, he still left with you know he still left with an experience that I think. It will 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 have an you know will 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 have an impact and and have a, a lasting a lasting memory on him. Yeah, I thought it was kind of surprising that he said he was you know so happy at the end, but I think mm. also he was happy because he was so relieved that it was just finally over this kind of stress and pressure, which I guess you know he'd had during the Olympics as well, and then also here you know everyone asking questions about it the media you know it kind of gets a bit much doesn't it and I do wonder also if he hadn't have played the Olympics whether he'd be a bit fresher 
for, for this tournament. However, you know, he couldn't have not gone and tried to win, you know, the Olympics and, and tried to do the Golden Slam, you know. So absolutely no shame in, in trying because what he was doing was obviously an astronomical feat and he came so, so close in the grand scheme of things. I know. I mean, he fell right at the right at the last hurdle. And I think you said it's, you know, he was, re- you know, the pressure was off. You know, it was the pressure was going to be off regardless of of, of what the outcome was. But we've got to remind ourselves that a calendar slab does not come along too often and you know the fact that it is like that is a that is pressure on you for the whole season um if you want to kind of do it and it was yeah it it, I guess it had sort of been building and you don't really know I think it it sort of just all came together I think in that in that final match you probably wasn't even thinking about it too much in the, the earlier rounds but when you get to the you know the final match with all the you know the big tennis players coming out to watch you. Sharapova was there, Rod Laver was there. You have all the celebrities as well in the crowd. You know it was a very big occasion, and you know I, I don't I, I don't think the crowd were left disappointed. You know not having seen you know history be made, given they saw someone in Medvedev win their you know first slam uh, ever, which you know for him would have been one of the sweetest feelings no doubt particularly given you know how meekly and how one-sided it was in Australia he's effectively done arguably he's done the, you know the, the complete opposite it's been a little bit of a, a role reversal in um in New York yeah and I mean that celebration at the end Joel when Medvedev <laughs> finally won uh, a lot of gamers were you know extremely delighted at the uh the fall to the floor which apparently on a gaming con- consoles or sort of controller l2 plus left is what is what the uh mm. what you need to do to, yes. to replicate that celebration on... yeah i i don't play um fifa <laughs> i don't i don't play video games so it, it's absolutely means nothing to me <laughs> he's a guy who's not known for celebrating so to see him do that was yeah i was a bit i was a bit surprised but yeah he obviously was he had obviously kind of planned it in advance and i i you know why not i mean he is he has been waiting for this moment all his life and the fact that it's rise he wanted to do it in his own medvedev way and to do it through a fifa celebration i think that was quite it was quite cool and, and very very memorable um and you know that, that i don't think it was it wasn't a sign of of disrespect i just think that was medvedev being medvedev and doing it in a way of well how can i make this memorable and you know i think he's a big fifa fan as well so it was quite it's just quite funny to see something that you see on in football and seeing it in tennis like it's like a yeah it's quite a cool kind of crossover there yeah i mean i don't see how it could be um disrespectful it's it's a celebration so i mean have you even won a grand slam title unless you fall to the floor in some sort of fashion because we don't (laughs) often see any other celebrations like people jumping up i mean kim we need we do need to speak about yes we you know that we've talked about the the kind of the result and do you feel like things could have been different because you know we we were talking about you know the the second set in specifically and the the start of that second set where you felt that Djokovic was going to do his customary lose the first set win in four because he was really knocking at the door on the on the Medvedev serve at the start of that that second set there were a lot of break point chances and he had a second serve where the point was in play and then he he had to have a, a let which felt against him because of a an audio speaker going off I think in the arena uh, during the point and they had to give Medvedev a first serve and although he didn't win that point he eventually won it and you could see Djokovic's frustration I mean he obliterated his racket he was very very close to hitting a ball boy kind of scarily in the direction of a, a ball girl who was running towards it fortunately that didn't happen we've all seen how that could have ended that has ended in the past but you you could tell that that felt that felt like a big big turning point the fact that Djokovic wasn't able to to break there that really i think was the a big moment we'll look back on in terms of one of the reasons why I think it was a straight sets victory for, for Medvedev and, and not maybe why we're talking about Djokovic, you know, winning potentially in four sets. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> I think that racket smash was just summed up uh, the day Djokovic was having. And uh, I mean, he needed to do it. He needed to let it out, didn't he? 
yeah and you know that that was a bit unfortunate with the let you know because it gave Medvedev a, a first serve again and perhaps you know perhaps that could have been a pivotal moment um I, I was certainly thinking that you know I think also at the start of that um first set you know just Novak having the break point she thought oh here we go again right normal service you know resumed but yeah it, as it went on and on and on and Medvedev was still winning I was like okay maybe maybe it was so bizarre to see Djokovic I mean he was 40-15 up in you know his first service game you thought okay we're just off to a normal start here but but no, Medvedev just broke straight away, and that really set set the tone, didn't it? And and to be honest, he all he, all he needed was one break of serve, given the level of of dominance he was having on his um you know, on his first serve, and in particularly on his second serve as well, compared to Novak Djokovic, because in the match, Novak Djokovic served you know second serve points one was only at forty percent, whereas Daniel Medvedev was up at sixty percent. So you know he was just regardless of of know which serve it was whether it was his first or second Medvedev was really getting the rewards and it was it was fascinating to see at times he was reverting to the Nick Kyrgios school of of second serves of of just bombing down two first serves and yes that did lead to a few double faults and we saw that I think play out in the the tension of of the championship point where he was just like trying to get it over as quick as possible and going for two first serves and it didn't really work for him but I think more or less that that strategy kind of paid off and I don't think Djokovic was fully expecting it. And even though we talk about him as, as one of the, the greatest returners of all time, it didn't really come across in that match. No, exactly. And I mean, where do you now see Medvedev and, you know, his future? Is this the first of, of many slams? I mean, I know some of the commentators last night were kind of saying, oh, this is the end of the big three. Uh, and I certainly think that, you know, Roger Federer is probably not going to win another slam. As for Rafa, perhaps he could get another Roland Garros. It really just depends on his body. At the moment, it, it does feel like it's a big one plus challenges. Um, but perhaps now that Medvedev's got, you know, this slam under his belt, the confidence, like, could he could he do it again? Could he beat, say, Novak in another final? But, but a Novak that's back to what we know Novak can do. I still don't think that this suddenly heralds a, a changing of the guard myself. I'm reluctant to go that far. <laughs> I mean, Kim, I'm I'm thinking whether Medvedev replaces Roger Federer in the big three because you know his record against Djokovic is is not is not too bad. His record against Nadal, I don't think, is too bad either. Um, I, I do kind of see him now that he's won this match as someone who will have the confidence and the belief when he steps on on court. Um, you know, with with one of you know Djokovic, Federer, Nadal. He will he will fully believe that he can go out and win, and I think that there will be you know if, if this matchup does happen again at, in Australia, I think that will be again that will be very fascinating in the sense that we I still think we sort of look at the Australian Open as that is Novak Djokovic's kind of bread and butter even more so than the the US Open. So whether that's an even greater challenge for him to overcome, we'll we'll have to wait and see. But certainly, I think that. Medvedev can now, I think, put himself in that group with Djokovic and, and Nadal. I think they will come back and I think there will be potentially future slam opportunities there in, in the future next season. Um, I don't know how much this is going to linger for, for Djokovic in terms of this final because, you know, we don't, I don't really kind of think about many matches of his in Grand Slam finals that have been particularly painful or, you know, have been hard defeats for him to take, you know, like he has inflicted, for example, on, you know, Roger Federer at Wimbledon, you know, the, that 2008 final as well between Nadal and Federer. And I do genuinely think we might look at, back at this match as, as his most painful, one of his most painful Grand Slam final losses, given kind of what was on the line, not necessarily in terms of he came so close and had championship points or, or something like that, but certainly in terms of the fact that, he had put a streak together at Grand Slams and falling at the last hurdle will feel, I think, very, it will, it will, I think it will, it will hurt him. And I know that he is one of the mentally strongest kind of players on the tour, if not, you know, one of the mentally strongest players, tennis players of all time. But regardless of that, the, the fact that this match showed that he is not invincible, the fact that he is vulnerable to someone like a, a Medvedev, um, I think I think it will take time for him to to get over. 
Yeah, I think um, I wouldn't be surprised if if he pulls out of you know the rest of the season, perhaps, or you know doesn't play Indian Wells, etc. Um, it's obviously been a big campaign and a big tiring year, so I, I think like he, that that is a possibility. But I do expect him to come back, uh, you know, back to normal in Australia. <laughs> uh, I mean, but- he still got to the grand. I mean, he still got to the final, and it was a pretty good show from him. Um, but well, I think we have seen though that you know his. His path to, to Grand Slam success this season, yes, there has been successes there, but certainly they have they have taken more time and more effort than they have previously. And again, I think it's another example of the fact that players are catching up with him. They are understanding his game. They can take that first set off him. And in, in some cases, like Daniel Medvedev, they can take three sets off him. So it's not I don't think it's going to be getting easier. And if you consider, you know, the likes of people like Dominic Team, for example, are going to be coming back. Who knows? Andy Murray, um, you know, we saw him push Sissipas to, to five sets here. So, you know, it's not going to get any easier, but I certainly think that he has the the capacity to add certainly more than more than a few to, to his name. And um yeah, although he will leave New York without the the calendar slam, you know, that I think, yeah, it was, it, it's, it's disappointing, but you know, other greats of the game have come very close and, and not been able to do it. You know, for example, Serena Williams, um, you know, the US Open when she lost to Roberta Vinci in the, in the semifinals, I think back in, in 2015. So I don't think it's going to be a, you know, it's certainly, I think something that could have elevated him above potentially Nadal and Federer, but not having it at the same time. I don't think that means that we look at him below Nadal and Federer. And let's look back at the other results from Sunday. Uh, first of all, we had the ladies doubles final, which saw a young pairing of Coco Goff and Katie McNally up against the more experienced uh, pair of Sam Stoza, one of your favourites, Joel, <laughs> and uh, Zhang Shui. Um, so this was a pretty close match. It was three sets. Uh, all, all sets were 6-3, uh, but Stoza and Zhang came out on top 6-3 in that third set. So, um, they've won their second women's doubles title um, as a team. And, you know, adding to uh, Stoza, especially her list of uh, women's doubles titles, uh, she won this title like 16 years ago, which just goes to show how how long she's been around on the tour. But um, yeah, really nice to see Stoza and Zhang winning. Uh, they also won Cincinnati last month. So obviously they're in really, really good form at the moment. And uh, nice that Coco Goff and McNally have, have got to a final because they've been a really... Um, exciting young kind of newish pairing. They've been playing together over the last couple of years, and, and obviously, really deserved final appearance for them as well. And Coco Goff said, which I I didn't realise, which is I quite, thought quite funny, was her first ever professional player autograph was Sam Stozer back in well back when she was I guess growing up and watching tennis, which I found amazing. But yeah, it was a very impressive uh, victory, I think for. Uh, Stoza and Zhang. I mean, Sam Stoza in doubles, uh, well, and singles as well. I mean, the, her longevity, I think, is what has been most impressive about her Grand Slam victories. She's now an eight-time Slam champion, spanning sixteen years, which is an incredible achievement in terms of endurance and drive and belief. That you know, over that time, you, you're still able to go out and say you're you're the best and. That was the case in the the ladies doubles uh, tournament at the US Open this time round. So very, very impressive. And I've no doubt she'll be back, well, next season in the doubles, certainly, and be another, I think, force to reckon with because they seem to be a, a pretty good partnership at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, another Australian who has done very well this uh, this whole year, in fact, is Dylan Alcott in the wheelchair quads because he did what Novak Djokovic could not do and has won the um, Golden Slam. So he's won all of the slams and the, the Paralympics, um, which is amazing. Um, really, really fantastic achievement. Um, he is sort of unheralded, isn't he, um, in the sport? And I, I love the fact that you, you particularly, Joel, are pleased with his celebration in the trophy <laughs> ceremony at the end of, of that final yes. yesterday. Yes, he. Uh, I think his biggest achievement was they they panned to him during the men's final, and he he put a beer in his trophy and downed it. So that was a great. <laughs> That was so good to see that on on the screen. I mean, he was celebrating in his own way. That was his like dead fish 
equivalent i guess his medvedev dead fish equivalent but um yeah it was great to see and again it's not it's just not an easy thing to do and to go and put an exclamation point on it and and get the olympic gold as well for dylan alcott who is a an absolute trailblazer i think for the sport and for particularly for paralympic tennis as well it's just an incredible achievement and the fact that he's got that i think that approachableness that accessibility the fact that he could just like down a pipe within you know with twenty three thousand people um around him you know he was just yeah he was just badly badly celebrating what was uh yeah a, a very very stellar year for him Absolutely. And uh, unfortunately, we also had Alfie Hewitt um, in the final of the uh, wheelchair singles, um, men's wheelchair singles. Well, not unfortunate that he was in the final, but he did lose uh, to Shingo Kaneda. So, um, but Alfie and Gordon have, have done the um, the doubles. So we'll get onto that in a bit later. But um, yeah, fantastic that he made the final um, again. Let's just take a quick break now, but do join us in the second half where we'll be looking back on all the results from Saturday, including that ladies singles final between Emma Raducanu and Leila Fernandez. So do not go anywhere. This is The Passing Shot with Joel and Kim, supported by DownloadTennis.com. And now we're going to move on to look back at Saturday night, which saw a ladies final between two teenagers, Emma Raducanu, qualifier, and Leila Fernandez, who um, has, well, it's fair to say it's kind of captivated the whole of the UK. And I can't remember in my lifetime following this sport, quite an occasion sort of mm. like this. and And to have... A British female Grand Slam singles champion is something that I never thought we would get to see. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Kim, there are so many stories all rolled into one, I think, with Emma Raducanu. She's not dropped a set. She's come from qualifying. The fact that she's a British singles champion as well, which hasn't happened in like 40 plus years uh, since Virginia Wade. So it's been, been truly remarkable. And I think before we kind of get into t- talking about the match, I think what was great about it was, as you said, it was a sense of occasion. And I think what really helped build that sense of occasion was, yes, it was on a Saturday night and everyone, I think, was clamouring to to have a TV uh, near them. But it was great, I think, to see in the UK particularly that it was on free to air. And there was a deal between Channel 4 and Amazon Prime. And as a result of that, it just, I think, captured everyone's imaginations and it really raised the profile i think for for british tennis and this was a very very big moment this is a sort of moment i think that we've exclusively been talking about in terms of andy murray for the last decade decade plus but the fact that emma raducanu 18 years old teenager has arrived on the scene and has done the almost the unspeakable really to go from qualifying round 1 to us open singles champion has been a story that has been so mesmeric and so baffling that Tim Hedman described it as a joke at the end of the match. And it's something that has really, you know, impressed everyone from tennis fans like ourselves to non-tennis fans uh, like my like my friends messaging me on WhatsApp, and even as far as as the Queen, who has been getting in touch to uh, to lay her uh, her appreciation. Yeah, um, I mean, Emma's had messages from, you know, far and wide and I just, everyone, you know, it's just, just, yeah, one of those occasions, like, as for tennis fans, you know, doesn't normally, you know, tennis doesn't normally kind of break through into like the real mainstream. And outside Wimbledon as well. Exactly. Yeah, we're normally watching, you know, some random like tournament in India or Venezuela or whatever and commenting on what's going on. And, you know, the fact that this has really just captivated the whole nation and everyone's behind it. I think, obviously, the fact that she got to the fourth round at Wimbledon. So we we had been mm. exposed to her. We'd seen kind of what she could do. And, you know, she'd had a, a night match there that, you know, everyone had kind of tuned in for. Obviously, that meant that they were already, to some extent, a bit aware. But for her to just suddenly, you know... Win a, win a US Open, second major ever, you know, just as you do, nicely done, nice and casual. Um, it's just remarkable. And, um, I, yeah, when Tim Herman at the end, he said, Oh, it's an absolute joke. That just sort of cracked me up because, you know, it, it would, if you're sort of, I don't know, not been following it and you suddenly 
read what had happened, you'd think, well, hang on a minute. Like, how, how did that happen? Like, how has she been suddenly able to play so well that no one can even get close? Like, she hasn't dropped a single set in, in 10 matches. And I think it was her second round match in qualifying when she got to like 7-5 in a set. And that is the closest that anyone has been able to get. <laughs> I mean, she's not, she's not faced a tie break. She's not dropped a set. And, you know, in the final, it was a continue, it was just continuing that, that dominance that I think she showed throughout the competition. You know, we've spoken about how both her and Fernandez have had very different routes to the final. The fact that Fernandez has come through lots of three set battles. Um, you were sort of nervous, weren't you? If it was going to go to a third set, whether that would have favored Fernandez, but Radicanu just came in with, so I think little pressure and expectation. I think it was quite clear from the outset. She has really loved being in New York and has felt very at home. And as a result of that, I think that has really shown in her tennis and how relaxed she, you know, she is on, on the tennis court. And you saw that, I think, straight away, uh, in the, in the first set when she, you know, raced into, or she, she, she broke uh, at the first opportunity to go to love up. Yes, Fernandez did break back, but, it sort of, I think, it sort of showed that that Radicanu was, and and to be fair, both of them just they weren't going to be paralysed at all by the situation and the fact that it was a, a historic matchup between two na- two teenagers, which I think was great because we got a really entertaining and enthralling match that was that had lots of drama. You know, we had that medical timeout as well in in the second set. But for Radicanu, I think particularly, it was just a continued assertion of, of how good she is on, on a tennis court. And in particular, I think her serve really kind of helped her today. And I actually think it was one of Fernandez's weaknesses. She doesn't necessarily have the biggest first serve. And, and Radicanu's return game was very, very impressive. It felt like, you know, in that first set and in the second set, she had lots of opportunities across quite a lot of the, the Fernandez service games. And even though, you know, they were, you know, three all in that first set, I, I sort of was thinking, you know, radicani has been playing the better tennis here. It might not, it might not look like that on the, on the, on the scoreboard, but I certainly felt that the way she was playing, it did make me a little bit like a little bit more confident. I think that she could, she could go and actually do this. Yeah, I was just hoping that it wasn't going to be a case of, of, of missed opportunities because Emma was getting a lot of break points on mm. the Fernandez serve. I think she had 18 in total and Fernandez did really well to save the vast majority of those. But obviously when it kind of comes time and time again that, you know, your, your serve is under pressure, it's only a matter of time really that you're going to succumb to it. And yeah, Emma much more confident on serve, um, which gave her that kind of added confidence, I guess, to really go for the return games. And she was whipping some of those returns and, and just like really in the rally from the word go. And I mean, it was, you kind of knew that we were in for a cracker from that second game. It was like 10 minutes long, you know, back and forth. And like the, the level was exceptional. And I just was thinking, God, this is completely different to the Wimbledon final where we had Carolina Pliska just who completely froze and could not really hit a ball in court to start with and it's so refreshing to have two players who have just come out and and you know so very young but just not phased by by the occasion and just being able to play their game from the very first point and like that's really nice that we've got that and it's because you always worry that the nerves are going to get the better of people yeah, exactly. And you just don't know. I mean, for these players, they're so early on in their careers. You just, you just don't know how they're going to react until they get on the, on the tennis court. And again, I know we've spoken about it before, Kim, but the, you know, the Radicani situation at Wimbledon, I think for a lot of British tennis fans, that was sort of also playing in the back of our minds in terms of that has happened before against Tomjanovic, where, you know, the, the situation arguably got the better of her. And, you know, in New York, full crowd you've got loads of legends watching courtside Billie Jean King was there Tim Hedman was there Virginia Wade was there which was very cool I thought it, you know it, it felt like a, a very much a, a pressure you know the pressure in in one sense was on but at the same time Radicani just was just not she just was not phased by it at all and just going back to some of the you know what was so impressive I think about the you know the points and the the way she she moved about on court was was that return because when she was returning the Fernandez serve it wasn't high risk low percentage tennis she wasn't going for winners straight straight off she was really kind of able to I think 
assert her her position on court by getting the ball back and getting it back deep, which uh, was really, I think, beneficial given that I think Fernandez has shown over the last few matches what a, a shot maker she can be. And if you give her a little bit of time and maybe the ball drops a little bit shorter, she she really likes to play with the, the angles. But the fact that I think Radicanu was going deeper and was able to get close to the baseline and also quite central as well, I think it helped her get into the rally quickly and really, I think, make it awkward for Fernandez. where before I think she would, she was had it a little bit easier. But certainly I think in this match, it was the Fernandez service games that I think felt were the, the biggest opportunities, I think, for, for Radicani. She was able to, you know, knock on the door time and time again. And as you said, the, the, the more times you knock on the door, the more likely you are going to, to break serve. And I think that's exactly what happened, despite the, you know, the number of, of break points that she did have. Yeah. And I mean, let's just talk about the, the sort of close of the match, because we had that sort of dramatic situation mm. um, when Emma was serving for it, I think it was. And she she fell over, essentially, and scraped her knee and, and it was you know starting to bleed. And I guess the, the rules are you can't have a player openly wounded and bleeding all over the court. So she had to go sit on her chair, have, you know, medical time out to get the, um, the, the wound, you know, um, cleared up and bandaged up and and Fernandez was not happy because you know she I think she just earned herself a break point she obviously had a little bit of momentum this was critical time you know for her she had to break back to to stay in the in the final um but she you know she was sort of whinging I suppose about the situation but you know we were so I mean I sort of was thinking oh was this another kind of um sits pass critique of a kind of break situation I know it wasn't a bathroom break but you know there are situations where players can you know this does happen it can be a bit controversial but I think Fernandez in this case I guess she was just doing what she felt she had to do because this was out of anyone's control like that's the laws of the game Emma had to be kind of bandaged up but obviously Fernandez felt that it was disadvantaging her however I would actually say I don't know if you would agree if our listeners would agree I would have thought it would have disadvantaged Emma more because she was the one that was then going to have to come out after having this sit down to then serve to to kind of stay in that game so I always feel like that is actually more disruptive to to the server um, when you have a, like a sudden break it was really interesting because it came at a really pivotal moment in that second set because it was either we're going to end in a, a champion or it was going to end in, you know, Fernandez back on back on serve and you know, Fernandez was really fighting. It felt it felt almost like it was her her last stand really, and you could see why she was not happy that the, you know there was a stoppage. Um, I was quite glad that it it didn't take you know like eight minutes, ten minutes or whatever to sort out. Like, uh, yeah, the toilet breaks seemingly have done over the last two weeks. It was quite uh, efficient in how it was resolved. But yeah, I certainly think that, you know, we saw the TV pictures. She was bleeding. Like, we just can't, you just can't have that, I think, happen regardless of, of what stage at the, at the match it is. So I think it was the right call for it to happen then. I also think that, you know, if Fernandez had broken back and it had to get resolved at the changeover, I don't think that would have helped uh, Fernandez' momentum then because it would have happened before she would have gone out to, to serve to to stay in the match. So I do think it was a bit it was a bit awkward, and I was uh, you know for a split second I was wondering if if Fernandez was going to kind of raise it in the on the, in the on court presentation afterwards. But you know she she really kind of delivered in her speech a really you know uh, you know very very good. One of the best probably runners up speeches I've, I've heard, but because she was very appreciative, I think, of the, you know, the moment. And, you know, she just accepted, I think, that Radicani was the better player on her day, regardless of what had happened in that moment. I think you, you just have to sometimes think, hold your head up and just say, yep, that, that was too good. And I think today, um, sorry, I mean, <laughs> on Saturday night, I think just, I just think over the, you know, the one hour, 51 minutes that they were on court, I just think it was the, very simple fact that Emma Raducanu was, was was playing the better tennis. Yeah, anything it's like anything you can do, I can do better. And I think mm. it's statistically looking back at their whole tournament, I think Emma was pretty much beating Fernandez on every category. Um, you know, in terms of service games won. Obviously, you know, she's won all her matches in straight sets going into the final. Fernandez has kind of had to scrape through. She'd been to, to three sets in the last four matches. So or perhaps there was also a bit of like 
mental and physical fatigue, you know, and just wasn't able to, mm. to battle through. But, you know, I was a bit scared. Oh, if it goes to a third set, then <laughs> these stats would speak to Fernandez. You know, this is where she really excels and thrives in a, in a third set decider. But yeah, her speech was really fantastic. Um, really nice sort of moving touch as well. Um, when she mentioned like 9-11 and considering, you know, she wasn't even alive when 9-11 happened. Um, she gave a very mature speech. Um, and on, and, 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 and Emma spoke well as well. Um, so it just, it just amazes me how, you know, 18 year olds, 19 year olds, they come across so sort of mature, um, in, in how they sort of conduct themselves. And, um, I definitely was not like that at age 18. <laughs> I, I wish I, I wish I had been more like Emma. Um, but also I think with Emma, like she, she doesn't come across as, um, you know, she's had quite a, a normal sort of teenage life, I, I suppose. You know, she's gone to a, a regular school. She's just done her A-levels. She hasn't sort of been at some specialised tennis academy. Whereas, you know, I think a lot of players at a young age, you know, move countries and go off. Um, and their whole kind of world is just tennis, tennis, tennis. And it's very disrupted. And she's kind of had a, a bit more of a, a different but but slightly normal upbringing. And I think maybe that's made her a bit more grounded and able to to deal with this I mean I don't know but however she's dealt with it it's been you know fantastic because I don't think we yeah just you know for such a young age to, to deal with it and cope with all the kind of pressure and the new situations like day after day it's just really like really remarkable <laughs> it's interesting you talk about that that route I think she she came to the the WTA tour because as you said you know a lot of players go through that sort of tennis academy you know start at a very young age and I think you know that that sort of approach you can imagine the, the pressure the pressure you are put under from such a young age um is there for for you know for a long time before you even get to potentially the you know arriving at the you know the WTA tour level but the fact that Radicanu you know has a more I guess a more balanced approach the fact that she had school she had education and whilst that was going on I think she you know she was at Bromley Tennis Centre you know working at um sorry uh training and co- you know having her, her coach kind of teach her at a tennis academy I think that balanced approach certainly I think comes across in that sort of level-headed very measured approach I think she has and it's been really impressive I think not just from her but also from her her team as well in terms of how they've managed to get her you know ready and and playing uh, you know, tennis, well, playing tennis and, and really building on that form in, in the grass court season because, you know, she got that, she got that, um, you know, that wild card, I think into, into Nottingham. And that was her first, that was her debut on, on the WTA tour. And she's just gone from kind of strength to strength. And although I think there has been, you know, little bumps in the road, you know, citing that, uh, you know, that match against Tom Janovic at Wimbledon, certainly since then, it's been very impressive and the hard court, the hard court season for her so far has been one that has been, you know, uh, uh, it, it has felt, Kim, like at times, it has felt like it could be the sequel to, to Wimbledon with Paul Bettany. It, it, <laughs> it is that sort of level, I think, of ridiculousness that we are talking about this match. And I know that, you know, I know that there'll be some listeners out there who will think that, you know, we are British fans and maybe we are being... We are exaggerating the situation, or we're being quite hyperbolic in terms of of what we're saying. But the fact that this this has happened and it's come out of nowhere, and we have not, we don't see that often. We've we've seen that before, yes, with maybe Maria Sharapova at Wimbledon. You could say also Iga Swiatek, I guess, at the French Open because she didn't she didn't drop a set either. But certainly for for British fans, with I think Andy Murray, sort of yes, he's still here, but you know his. His time is, you know, winding down at some point soon. The fact that Emma Raducanu has some burst onto the scene, um, you know, almost at the at the right time, has made this, I think, so impactful. And I think, you know, you can see from the the number of people who were watching that match last night, particularly amongst youngsters, you can see how it is captured. I think certainly a new generation of of tennis fans. And I think one of the questions for for British tennis. Um, you know, the people who run tennis in the UK now will be how, how do we, how do we jump on this moment, this unexpected moment? Because, you know, we've been in this situation before with Andy Murray and that felt like they could have planned for it properly. But the fact that this has happened over three weeks, uh, it's gone from zero to everything. And, you know, Radicani's life will have no doubt changed. Her teams and her parents' lives will have, have changed as well. But it's going to be a big question, I think, now in, 
for tennis in the UK? How can we how can we capture on this global superstar to uh, yeah to really give tennis and participation I think of it in the UK a real shot in the arm? Yeah, I mean, 15, 18 years from now, we might have people citing this as their mm. kind of pivotal moment when they got involved in the game and yeah we'll we'll have to see because 48% i think of like 16 to 34 year olds um apparently tuned in to channel 4 to to watch it on on saturday night so it's just you know crazy i bet channel 4 are like thrilled that they managed to to get that prime coverage for um for the event but i also did see something on twitter which made me laugh because it was I don't know who it was now, but they were saying, oh, Emma's just, you know, gone and won, um, you know, a slam in her second, uh, you know, slam in her second major. Like she's she's going about it the wrong way. As British tennis fans, we're used to suffering for years on end, like we did before Andy finally won Wimbledon. It's like it, it's so unexpected for, for British actually just sport British sports fans in general to to not have years of agony and hurt before we actually win something. It's amazing because I was reading today about how we kind of comparing this this noise to and it, it if we do compare it to, to other sports other superstars in the UK this feels like a moment that the last time it happened it might have been someone like you know Lewis Hamilton in terms of the noise and the fervor I think that has really got people kind of excited about you know Emma Raducanu and what she's about on the tennis court and what's so amazing is that this was just only her second grand slam you know there's going to be Providing that hopefully she can stay injury free, you know, this is, we're, we're at the very beginning here of her story. You know, this is not a Pavlachenkova style situation where it's happened towards the, towards the end of her career. The fact that this has happened so early on and has put her on the map with so many people at such a young age, at 18 years old. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be fascinating to see how her story develops because she has, she has in a way, you know, not been tested. And I think one of the questions for me coming out of this is when, when will she be tested? Who will test her? And how, you know, how will that test come? Because at the moment, we've, this, this tournament really has been a tournament of invincibility, I think, for, for Radicani, given the, the set score lines that we've seen. I mean, 6 1, 6 2, 6 3, 7 5, 6 1, 6 4, 6 2, 6 3, 6 2, 6 4, 6 love, 6 1, 6 2, 6 1, 6 3, 6 4, 6 1, 6 4. I mean, Kim, it sounds like they got even, they got easier. Sorry. And then 6 4, 6 3 in the final. They got even easier as they developed into, you know, the business end of the, the competition. So it's going to be fascinating, I think, to see, you know, what that test how that test comes, you know, we, we have granted not seen her against some of the, the leading lights in the sport, like, you know, Osaka, Hallett, that Fernandez has had to, um, you know, for example, play in the build up. You know, she obviously beat Osaka, Kerber, Svitolina and, and Sabalenka. So that I think for me is going to be the next real interesting element of her you know journey so far this season and whether she can maybe even squeak through into the the WTA tour finals I think that that potentially is a realistic uh, ambition of hers now that she's what got over 2,000 ranking points from uh, from winning the US Open yeah she actually has 2,040 ranking points from winning the US Open because she got 40 points for coming through qualies which um funnily enough means that even if she defended her title at the US Open next year she could only lose points because she obviously won't need to qualify next year unless something drastically changes I know WTA thinking that eventuality was never ever going to happen but the fact that it has happened, that that needs to change. That shouldn't be, that doesn't feel fair. If you're able to defend your title and lose points, that is just, that shouldn't be happening, should it? <laughs> well, you're getting another 1.8 million quid. So <laughs> does 40 ranking points matter so much? Very true. Um, yeah, I think for, from now on, you know, it'll be so interesting to see how Emma adapts to life on the tour. I think she's gone up to about 24 in the world. So she'll be obviously instantly into to all the top tournaments you know Indian Wells would be coming up in October be really keen to see how she gets on there um and then potentially yeah the WTA tour finals but obviously going into Australian Open there's a high chance she'll be seeded um it, it's just going to be really interesting to it's watch changed navigate. completely it's yeah. changed completely her life has, has gone literally upside down um and you know for her team as well it's it's been yeah it's, this has probably felt like a, a journey 
for them already and it's only going to ramp up from here and again and another question will be around how does she handle that that newfound fame that is 100% coming her way because it doesn't it doesn't feel like we've unearthed a you know a british tennis uh you know superstar it feels like we've unearthed a, a global tennis superstar as well yeah i just hope that she has you know she continues to have a good team around her and i just worry that you know with, with this kind of um notoriety and and fame you know comes a lot of pressure and we've seen, you know, the likes of Osaka really struggle with the limelight. And, you know, a part of that maybe because it just doesn't gel well with Osaka's like natural, you know, personality type. Um, the fact that she's very introverted. So obviously people kind of do do it in different ways. But I just worry that, you know, I hope that a few years down the line we don't see Emma struggling. I mean, it is such a high that she started on. I, I don't know. Is there going to be questions around... You know, motivation. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, for example, Monica Puy at the, the Olympics when she won the, the gold medal. And it was, I think, you know, we've kind of seen since that, you know, that, that was her peak. And it was hard, I think, for her to get motivation after that because realistically she had done the best that she could do with her tennis career by getting that gold, you know, that gold medal. And, you know, is there a danger here that with Radjikanu we have seen her peak? Or do you, or are you, or do you think you know? Actually, this is only the beginning, and you could see her potentially as a a multiple slam champion because we have, although seen you know many first time winners, you know on the on the women's circuit, we have seen them some that are, have been flash in the pans. You know, I'm, I'm saying people like, for example, Yelena Ostapenko. Yes, she could prove, prove me wrong, but at the moment, I think we would have to put her in that category. So, uh, where, where do you where do you stand on that? Do you think? Do you think we've seen a peak or, or do you think that it's going to continue? I would hope we haven't seen a like Sam Stozer one slam, mm. you know, job. Um, you know, Emma's like, it, it's very different, isn't it? When it's just your second major. She's the youngest, per- well, she's the youngest. Um, she's the first, sorry, she's the first person to have won a slam in, in as few, few, you know, the most, the fewest attempts. Um, what am I trying to say? Um, we had Andreescu do it on her fourth slam. I think Krishika did it on her fifth. So, like there have been similar stories, but I mean, just the manner of how she performed and played with such confidence mm. and not being phased by the situation, just, you know, amazing. And, but I am careful. Like, I don't want to, because we have seen a lot of, you know, first time slam winners and, you know, it's different to the men's game, isn't it? Where it's been so dominated. So I think we need to just take it like a step at a time, enjoy this moment. Um, and there's no rush, like really to think, Oh, what's she going to do that over the next 10 years? Like, let's just appreciate what she's done over the past three weeks because whatever, ha- what happens happens. Like we hope that she stays fit and healthy. Like that's the main thing. We've seen players like Andrescu really struggle since, you know, she won her slam. So we kind of the main thing I think would be to stay fit and healthy and just kind of enjoy all these new experiences like playing at, you know, Indian Wells and all these other sort of top tournaments that are coming up. Um, it's all, you know, it's all going to be so fresh and exciting. And I think hopefully she can tap into that and kind of focus on on that aspect rather than, oh, the pressure's on. Everyone's going to be expecting me to to dominate and win another slam in straight sets. One thing I do want to see, though, I do want to see a Radicanu and Murray mixed doubles, mixed doubles team at a add a grand slam in the future i want that to happen i don't all these single all these single slabs yeah that's absolutely fine i want to see a mixed doubles pairing with her and andy murray i think that would be really great for for british for british tennis well talking of the mixed doubles joel i think radicano would rather partner with joe salisbury at the moment because (laughs) joe salisbury has won two slams this tournament like you know we don't just have one British Grand Slam we've got well we've actually got four because Gordon Reid and Alfie <laughs> Hewitt have won the wheelchair doubles um yeah Joe Salisbury has won the mixed doubles um it's his second mixed doubles title of the season and his second with Desiree Kravchik who um has won three mixed doubles titles this year three in a row um and a semi-final in Australia with with Joe Salisbury and um, she's become the seventh player to do that in the open era so it doesn't happen too often so um you know she won Wimbledon with, with Neil Skupski when when Joe went off with Harriet Dart and um they played against each other in the final but they they were back together for the US Open and um, they came through in straight sets against Marcelo Aravalo and Juliana Olmos, seven five six two. So yeah, they were they were they were the best team. They were quite dominant, especially mm. as the match went on. Um, 
great serving and you know Joe Salisbury obviously is in the form of his life he won the men's doubles of Rajiv Ram um on Friday and like just obviously this this partnership works I hope they continue to play together yeah. until <laughs> until it doesn't work <laughs> yeah they just need to keep just keep playing mixed doubles with each other uh, every grand slam because yeah it seems to be a partnership that's working really really well for them I think they were particularly dominant on their uh their first serve first serve points they won 82 percent. so yeah i think the story of the competition really was was this pairing and and joe salisbury to come out of the u.s open with two titles the fact that emma radicani has won the singles titles as well alfie hewitt and gordon reed also in the the wheelchair doubles it's been a fantastic tournament for british tennis and i think emma radicani has obviously got the lion's share of the the plaudits particularly in in the british media but certainly the, the feat that Joe Salisbury has accomplished and the fact that he's a, also a doubles double slam champion um, in Flushing Meadows is nothing to be sniffed at. And as you said, he's playing so many matches at the moment, but if he's, you know, he's in such good form that it doesn't matter what he's playing, if his mixed doubles, if his men's doubles, it doesn't matter. He's just, he's just sort of, he's just, he's just going on to win. And again, I think just going back to that men's doubles, him and him and Ram, I think will have serious ambitions to see if they can win um, you know the ATP Tour Finals uh, when it comes around at the end of the season, and hopefully Wimbledon perhaps next year. Because I'm sure yeah. that Joe, that will be the one that Joe really, you know, wants to to get his hands on, like his home slam. Um, but yeah, Alfie here at Gordon Reed, like we said, they they won the wheelchair doubles against Fernandez and Cuneda. Six one six two, they thrashed them. Um, they've won all four doubles Grand Slams this year. Um, so really absolutely fantastic uh, run. It's their twelfth Grand Slam in total together. So um the the most amazing partnership and you know, yet more British success. Um Jordan Wiley was not able to do it in the women's wheelchair doubles final, but it did mean um, however, that your faves, Degroot and Van Coot, uh won yet another title. Yep. They are so dom- they are so dominant, aren't they? Um, it just seems that Degroot and Van Coot, they just win absolutely everything. Whenever they're in a final, they are very, very dominant. So it was very, very impressive from them. Yeah, unfortunate, I think, for Jordan Wiley. But Degroot, Van Coot, the best rhyming names in tennis uh, at it again. So very, very impressive. And Joel, this is what everyone's been waiting for. The most important result from this weekend. Forget Emma, forget Medvedev. Uh, what everyone cares about is collector set, obviously. And we have a winner. Very exciting. Um, we had to do another tiebreaker um, between two of our participants. But we are very pleased to announce that Marco Hurtado has won collector set. Uh, he got three correct guesses, got Djokovic right, Kerber and Sabalenka. Um, and he narrowly eclipsed Benjamin Yap, who also got three correct with Djokovic, Rublev and Kerber. We asked them both a tiebreak question, which was to name how many games the losing men's finalists would win in the final. And they both pretty much, they were both very <laughs> close on their predictions. Um, but Marco won, um, with 17, uh, games predicted, uh, and obviously the final final winning the the final games won by the losing finalist was 12 so Marco came closest um I would have won if uh Djokovic had had won (laughs) yesterday but I'm I'm glad that uh I didn't win I'm glad that Marco has got the the trophy and the coveted prize well you've already got a passing shot mug I can't I'm not going to allow I'm not going to allow another passing shot mug to be delivered to you. So uh yeah. Um no, it was uh yeah, it was very very impressive. Yeah, very tricky uh, set I think to to guess on. I'm just saying that though because I got zero. Um so <laughs> I think I ended up with the the wooden spoon. Literally every everything everything wrong. Um Kim was storming ahead. So uh we should probably look back on the, the Joel and Kim rivalry this season on collect set, see who did the who did the best. I think overall you've probably beaten me. Um I've never been in contention <laughs> to win before. So uh but I did feel bad. If I if I'd have won, I would not have needed another mug. So I obviously that's why Djokovic um lost, because he was like, Well, you know, someone else needs to win collector set. But um, anyway, we will bring that back for the next Grand Slam. Thanks to everyone f- for taking part again. I hope you enjoy playing along and perhaps cheering or not cheering your players on. Um, and thank you for, yeah, thanks for taking part. It's always um, a nice little bit of fun for every Grand Slam that comes around. 
And that brings us to a close for our US Open 2021 passing shot pod coverage. Um, it's been fantastic to, to chat with you, Joel, and to touch base <laughs> with all our listeners kind of every couple of days or so over the last fortnight. It's been the most amazing tournament, uh, for British tennis. I think like I don't remember a slam where we've come away with so many titles. So it's been absolutely fantastic. I am going to have a glass of Pims. I know it's not Wimbledon, but I think Emma Raducanu <laughs> and Joe Salisbury, Gordon Reid and Alpha Hewitt deserve, um, you know, deserve us to drink yes. Pims. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> any, any excuse. Um, but yeah, we've, we've really enjoyed um, podcasting and discussing the US Open over the last few weeks. And thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to us. Yeah, and listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our round-by-round round coverage of the US Open over the last couple of weeks. It's been an absolute blast. I uh, thank you so much for for everyone who's listened to the show, getting in touch with us on social media. Uh, it makes it all worthwhile. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for uh, taking taking the time out of your busy schedules to uh, listen to the passing shot. We are not done though. You know, we still got the the rest of the season to come. We've got Labour Cup. The tour finals, of course. We need to do our passing shot quiz at some point, Kim, as well. So, listeners, remember, if you want to stay up to date with all the action coming up in the tennis world, then make sure to subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, CastBox, Stitcher, and all good podcasting platforms out there. And you can also listen to us on the DownloadTennis.com app. And if you have been enjoying listening to our round-by-round coverage over the last couple of weeks and you want to show your support for the show, then why not leave us a rating and comment on Apple Podcasts? And you can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Passing Shot Pod. So do give us a like and a follow if you don't already. Tell all your friends about us. Perhaps you've got friends who are now really into tennis, want to follow Emma Raducanu on the tour. <laughs> uh, they can do so with Passing Shot Pod. So do uh, give us a shout. Um, you can get in contact on our social channels or also via email, passingshotpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our website, www.thepassingshot.com co.uk listeners once again i hope you have enjoyed our round by round coverage over the last couple of weeks we are going to be back in tour catch-up mode going back to week by week i think uh, for the last set of tournaments following the us open so lots lots more to come so i hope you can join us for that and we will see you again soon <laughs>